0: When I started my PhD, um, most of the representation learning techniques that I was working with uh, heavily relied on the domain knowledge of the experts to design uh, features that uh, would kind of do the heavy work in terms of generalizing into unseen distributions, and be robust to uh, kind of, um, let's say, factors that we are not interested in. And then, Usually the next level was a disconnected separate level that would try to process these low-level features a bit farther to come up with perhaps intermediate representations or high-level representations. And on top, there was uh, either a simple classifier or some decision-making unit on top or some distance based directly on these high-level representations that would do either the ritual tasks or uh, the classification or whatever the task was.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Austrian AI podcast. I'm your host, Manor Pasika. And today on the show, I'm talking to Hamid Sade. Hamid is doing his postdoc at the Johannes Kepler University in Linz at the Institute of Machine Learning. During the interview, we are going to talk extensively about his research in the area of representation learning. But before we start, a few remarks. Because of the length of the interview, I decided to split the episode in two parts, which I am going to release separately. I decided to do so in order for you to be able to listen to each part in a single session. The first part, so this one, is focused on Hamid's research on how to learn robust representations and how data augmentation impacts your models. During the episode, we return several times to one of the main challenges with deep neural networks, the limited capacity to generalize out-of-training sample distribution. This limitation of deep neural network to see beyond the training examples is exactly what one tries to improve with robust models and representations. And one traditional way to achieve this is data augmentation. Unfortunately, data augmentation is no silver bullet and has its weaknesses and dangers. Hamid explains his research on how to combine methods that were developed to analyze models in adversarial risk settings to study the effect of data augmentation on the decision boundaries and the robustness of models. This marks then the end of the first part of the interview. I really hope that you find these two episodes interesting and entertaining. Hello Hamid, thank you very much for coming on to the show.
0: Hey Manuel, thanks a lot for having me, it's um, very exciting to be here. Very
1: exciting for me too. I think we have a lot to talk about today. as we discussed prior, you, you have very extensive research journey and you have done a lot of different, very interesting things in the field of machine learning and deep learning. And I'm very excited to have you today on the show and to talk with you about your research, focusing on representation learning, data augmentation and reinforcement learning and many, many different other things. But maybe we can start out with you giving a short introduction about yourself, your background, um, how you came about to like start doing research in the field of deep learning and machine learning.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm also excited to talk about all of this with you and hopefully with your audience. Um, I actually uh, got interested in machine learning uh, even uh during my bachelor studies, which was in mathematics. And I always kind of had these two uh, parallel interests between mathematics and computer engineering, and later on in computer science. And uh, for my bachelor's, I chose uh, mathematics. And um, after finishing my bachelor, I actually got more interested into computer science, and then later on discovered what was called Pattern recognition back in the days, and later on, it turned into uh, more machine learning um, research, and that was the path that kind of got more got me more and more into machine learning research. Um, yeah, I actually um, uh, kind of considered the beginning uh, of my journey into machine learning uh, when I started my PhD, where I had kind of the uh, time to dig it dig deep into different areas of machine learning and i kind of had the chance to explore a lot of different interesting directions
1: mm-hmm. interesting um, when you said when you finished your master's degrees right before you started your your phd or your postdoc series that was in what topic actually
0: um, i did my master's actually in speech processing and mm-hmm. back in the day, I was um, working on uh, speech recognition and later on on uh, speaker recognition. And um, this is kind of pre deep learning era where we were still relying on uh, probabilistic models, HMMs, uh, factor analysis uh, to kind of uh, factor out the. Uh, different uh, kind of features that were represented in the environment, and kind mm-hmm. of trying to, through feature engineering, get the most robust representation of the speech, and mm-hmm. then build on top a um, uh, low-dimensional representation that captures the essence of mm-hmm. uh, either the phonemes if it was speech recognition or the speaker identity if it was on uh, speaker recognition. I understand. Um, yeah. I can definitely that see the similarities,
1: the similarities here to to, to, your, to your ongoing research or research that has been coming then afterwards. But maybe shortly before we talk about that, a short tra- sidetrack here, because I'm curious, um, as you have then been in academia for quite some time, have you ever... Um, thought about at that stage let's say, at that um, turning point after your masters that maybe industry would be something that you would like to do or was it for you very clear that academia was the path to go and you always always wanted to be in academia and now you have been in academia for quite some time so
0: yeah that's a very interesting question actually um, I was in industry for some years before starting my career um, higher education and I had some experience uh, first in the software industry Mm -hmm. uh, for some years as a software developer and later on as a um, a technical manager and um, then I kind of had a journey through software development into uh, companies that had machine learning oriented software products and from there I kind of got hooked into these models that don't need to be coded for every instruction uh, ah, okay. and, and can learn from data. And it became, I, I got fascinated with how these models works. And it kind of uh, was the yeah, beginning for me to dig into this kind of area of research. But um, later on, I found academia a good place to explore and learn because you have quite a lot of freedom but um i always had interest in both industry research and academic research but definitely research is the the main um uh, kind of interest for me mm-hmm. but i i believe um both are uh, very good uh places to to do research, but of course, with different kinds of uh, structure, depending on um, what you want to do in in industry. Uh, To my friends and colleagues, I know you, you may have better resources, you may have more focus, but in academia, of course, you have more freedom
1: mm mm-hmm, mhm. Yeah m- maybe we can touch upon this um later as well because I think that especially like as you d- the I said like the topics you can or the research that is happening in the end like in industry and in academic settings, I think nowadays maybe are quite aligned like um it content Indeed. Right? And, but Indeed. they obviously like uh, as I always always said like many people are worrisome about um how like the that that most of the research in machine learning is following along the same trend, and ex- and really hope actually that academic sector would bring more diversity and would bring um, let's say explore different aspects, with not necessarily exactly the same as maybe as, as some of the big um, economically driven research labs and companies. But but maybe uh, that's a huge topic. <laughs> maybe if you see have a, a time at the end, we can talk about that. But maybe let's come back a bit um, more to your PhD then which you actually did at the JKU, if understood correctly?
0: Yes, yes. Uh, So I started my PhD at uh, Johannes Kepler University at the Institute of Computational Perception. And um, uh, what later on uh, became to be was a thesis that was uh, a a long uh, exploration into representation learning, starting Mm -hmm. with... uh, Uh, Factor analysis and very quickly switching to -to end-to-end learning of uh, high-level representations with a very wide range of applications, uh, data kinds and learning settings, uh, but uh, with a um, general focus on learning uh, robust representations.
1: Mm -hmm. Can you uh, to our listeners explain this a bit more and like on one side, a robust representation, but maybe even taking a short step back, as you already mentioned, like the current deep learning technologies to be favored because of the um, uh, many ways feature representation learning that they can do Um, so. That's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about that you maybe we can talk a bit about this, this aspect, especially about um, deep learning in the sense that being able, as you said, to maybe make it possible that you don't have to handcraft all kind of feature extraction, feature preparation, um, but you can let a model in this sense, learn from data itself to find a decent representation for the task you want to, want to perform.
0: Right. Exactly. Uh, you said it very well. So when I started my PhD, um, most of the representation learning techniques that I was working with, uh, heavily relied on the domain knowledge of the experts to design uh, features that uh, would kind of do the heavy work in terms of generalizing into unseen distributions, and be robust to uh, kind of, um, let's say factors that we are not interested in. And then, Usually the next level was a disconnected separate level that would try to process these low level features a bit farther to come up with perhaps intermediate representations or high level representations. And on top there was uh, either a simple classifier or some decision-making unit on top or some distance based directly on these high level representations that would do either the ritual tasks or uh, the classification or whatever the task was. But um, with the emergence of deep neural networks and deep learning, these kind of um, these different levels that were being done with different kind of models and different kind of uh, uh, modules are mostly being done nowadays, end to end, and you just uh, feed your, data into into the model and your neural network actually adapts its own filters and parameters to play the role of feature extraction. And then the higher layers focus on learning intermediate level or high level representations. And on top, uh, there is the part that uh, is kind of the decision-making unit or the classification part. And all of this is done end to end. And there are now there's so many different options to choose from so many different objectives, depending on what you have available. Do you have a lot of data? Do you have little data? Do you have supervision? Do you have noise in your labels or not? And there are so many options that you can uh, choose from to do all of this end to end.
1: Mm-hmm. Just maybe uh, one question here on my side, which was always curious, what I was always curious about. I can remember like initially, like even like, for example, with AlexNet and uh, the first analysis that were done there, like on many uh, in the domain of image analysis, there were these wonderful feature hierarchies that you could see in the different filters in those networks, right? Where you're at the beginning at the input somewhere, that you saw like them. After the model was trained, you could see it focused maybe on a single part, like only on a specific orientation of of lines in an image, and then you had like this build-up of like more complex features as you described it, as well as you went into the network. Many ways. So in the middle, maybe a network that was trained, for example, on the MNIST dataset, suddenly you could see you could, it could identify maybe shapes, parts of of a, num- of a number and similar until in the end, as you said, like it comes to this decision point where it maybe then combines, aha, okay, there's like, it's a circle on top and there's a, uh, I don't know, a vertical line, uh, some in the middle, so that's maybe a nine. Um, is this actually still the case? Is, the, is this still a good mental model to think about how, like say, representations are laid out? In a network, and this this hierarchy of 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 this um, you said like representations in many ways is this something that you would say is a good model to think about your networks?
0: Uh, right, right. So uh, this still persists even nowadays, and it's just uh, I think the way even you train your models, um, you kind of also motivate your network to learn this way by the inductive biases of Uh, your network architecture and perhaps the regularization or other stuff that you put into the network, you kind of design your filters such a way that are more suitable to to detect certain low-level features. And later on, you kind of add poolings to learn more general representations. And I think also it makes sense to have this hierarchy because uh, then uh, you can do a lot of different... um, Kind of things you could use the lower level features for. I don't know specific things you can pass these representations for other tasks that help uh, capturing, for example, texture better. And you can use the higher level representations to capture higher level aspects or to disentangle different high level um, semantics from each other. So this is kind of the the um, hierarchy that is useful and it's not just uh, kind of something that sounds nice but actually it's practical and and helpful uh in practice as well Mm
1: -hmm. understand yeah makes sense then maybe coming back to to the content as you already touched about it of your phd can you go a bit um to detail there what you were working on
0: uh sure sure so i explored quite a lot of different uh, application numbers during my PhD. For example, I uh, started working with uh, audio signals and music signals um, as uh, time series that uh, uh, kind of carry musical or acoustic information. And the task then is to learn representations that could capture certain things, for example, that could tell you uh, which environment you're in. Uh, based on um, the sequence of acoustic events that you receive, or perhaps uh, if you, if the sequence is music, um, what genre this music is uh, played in or what artist uh, is playing this piece and so on. Um, And later on, uh, I had um, applications that was modeling from uh, long genomic sequences, which is a fascinating problem because this is an extremely high dimensional data and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's depending on the sequence in technology, you can have an extremely noisy representation of your genome. And then, uh, this is a, um, pretty complex problem. How, to, how you want to learn even from this representation, which was also a pretty interesting project, uh, by itself, uh, which I worked on during my PhD and And later on, I started working on symbolic representations uh, back in the days from um, symbolic music, actually, and how we can learn from this uh, symbolic representation of music and how can we uh, use it to build a generative model of symbolic music? How can we steer this generative model into different high-level aspects of music, for example, rhythm or um, uh, loudness or uh, genres and how can we make the model that understands these concepts only from uh, symbolic data and part of my phd was also focused on images where I wanted to kind of be able to learn the density of a high dimensional space of images which is pretty complex and pretty high dimensional and how can mm-hmm. you um learn from this complex uh, representation and how can you generate from it and how can you uh, uniformly cover all the data manifold that exists in your dataset without uh, losing part of the clusters or classes that exist in the data without actually having any label information. So what unsupervised signal can you use in a generative model? To, in order to uh, learn to generate with, with high diversity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These are some of the interesting problems that I, I was lucky enough to uh, get to work on. And in each of them, like a, an aspect was, okay, now we have a way of learning this. How can we make sure that we can generalize into out of distribution? Or how mm-hmm. can we be robust towards a specific aspects? Uh, if the distribution changes, can our model still continue to work or not? And that was kind of the starting point of my journey into robustness in uh, deep learning.
1: Exactly, that's what I wanted to ask you about exactly this: what it is meant by this robust representation part of your PhD? Exactly to understand so robustness in this sense, as you said, means to be able, as you said, like for a model that was trained to explore in many ways to to expand into um, out of distribution. Handling being able to handle out-of-distribution examples. Do I understand this correctly? This is the robustness exactly.
0: referring to. Exactly. The robustness is a term that has been used in many different contexts mm-hmm. and concepts, and perhaps overused even. And um, different communities mean different things by robustness. Uh, in the context that I am, uh, I have worked on, uh, it's mostly focused on. Um, being able to generalize into distributions beyond the training uh, distribution. Uh, because um, nowadays, mostly we know that if we have enough data, and if we have a large enough training data, we can learn a pretty okay model that works pretty reasonably on, on the training distribution. And if we have unseen samples that match very closely to the strain distribution, we can kind of generalize, but our problems at least within the deep learning paradigm starts when the kind of testing or unseen examples start being um, far from the strain distribution. Although most of the aspects of this Test distribution are the same as training, but it turns out that even if there are small changes or slight changes to the test distribution, then the models actually start to degrade in terms of performance. And -hmm. and that's actually a pretty big problem. And many think we should just make our training set bigger, but perhaps robustness researchers are are trying to uh, dig deeper and understand why this is the case, Mm -hmm. right?
1: Just, just maybe here to, to understand this, like um, as you described, for example, in a classification task, um, it's in this sense easy to understand, right? If you're out of distribution, in many ways, maybe you get the, let's say the wrong label assigned to, to your example that you that, that your model is used on. But for example, in a re- type of regression task, robustness in many ways is measured by the amount of error that in many ways is um, performed on a, a sample that comes like out of the training distribution. Is there, or is it, in some way just do you what does it then mean to be robust robust means to be somewhere close enough to the the the
0: correct value that's a pretty good question you have a model and with whatever means you evaluate its performance uh, that you can say okay I, i i trust this model now this model is good enough for me and this is a pretty well well established technique in Mm at least academia, that you pick a measure, for example, accuracy, you pick a test set, uh, and then you measure your performance with this specific measure on this specific test set, and then you draw a conclusion that this model works, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. However, um, there is more dimension to this. First of all, what does this single performance measure tells you? Is accuracy enough in order to trust this model? Is this single test set enough for you to to trust on this model? Or Mm -hmm. or do you need to create variations of this test set? Or do you need additional test sets where you introduce a certain shift to the distribution? For example, um, you... I don't know, add some Gaussian noise to, to, to all the test examples, and then you see if the performance drops or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you have to also measure, for example, in addition to accuracy, some other aspects, for example, how are the decision boundaries of our model form? Or variance of my predictions change if I slightly change uh, my testing samples with some stochasticity, for example, add some random noise to the input, and on average, will the variance of predictions be higher compared to a fixed test set or not? So you kind of want to have a distributional understanding of the prediction Mm -hmm. rather than just having a fixed point and a fixed number.
1: I understand. But uh, I was just thinking from, as we discussed shortly, from this industrial perspective on on the problem, as I said, right, definitely to be able to generalize out of training distribution is one of the main one of the biggest problems, in many ways, that we have with deep learning, and for me, from uh, more a practical um, experience as well, like. I what always thought like many companies care about the worst case performance in many ways of those networks, right? So it's good to have like a statistical understanding in many ways as you said, right? Adding a specific amount of noise, maybe be amplified by a network in in, in accuracy. Um, But in many ways, right? If you want to uh, use this for maybe like even like a safety critical uh, situation, the worst case performance for individual cases can be very important, right? If, if the network suddenly does exactly the opposite in many ways of you want, right, this can be in many ways, um, can be dangerous. It can be like a reason why, you, for example, cannot even use this technology because you cannot, you can put no bounds in many ways on the error that the system performs Do I, do you think that is an issue?
0: Uh, yeah, that's a very good point. And there are uh research directions being done uh, in this front and there are certified models that have a provable error bond although Mm -hmm. i don't want to discuss how loose are those bonds or how how useful are those bonds or how practical are those kind of models but uh, i i i I agree with with you in this direction and uh, so what i think is missing even long before we get to these worst case scenarios, right? Uh, I believe that even some average cases of robustness are being ignored nowadays. And of course, uh, I think it's very important to know about the worst case, but also a lot of average cases could be very insightful. And we should kind of step uh, one step, uh, take one step back and get a little bit a bigger picture from just having a fixed set test um, accuracy and start looking into, okay, what other kinds of distributional shifts make sense? Because in the real world, everything changes. In um, a lifelong agent uh, deals with an ever-changing environment and it has to deal with the changes all the time and uh, just Assuming that, okay, today from morning to the evening, I received some uh, information from the world and I learned how things work. So I'm good to go. I shut down my learning and I live my life happily ever after. This is not going to work because everything Mm -hmm. is going to change. So uh, it's kind of um, funny to uh, see that we kind of ignore this fact in evaluation of our models and we just feel that's enough to just have some performance on fixed fixed sets.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Makes sense. Um then thinking about like what we talked um of Mike in many ways, if we understood it correctly you chose, for example, as one way to research how can we increase the robustness of those representations and how can we help to generalize the models out of distribution. Um, The way towards thinking about data augmentation, if I understood it correctly, was one of the approaches that you were looking into. And I think there was one of your paper on data augmentation at adversarial risk and empirically analysis. Um, Can you talk a bit more about this?
0: Yes. uh, This is Uh, actually a very good point to switch to that direction because many of us that trained uh, a neural network or two kind of know that given the training sets that we have and given the models that we have, there is this unwritten rule to apply data augmentation on the fly to get this performance boosted and get that state-of-the-art performance on our papers and so on. And it's kind of a given and nobody actually questions, okay, what are these things that we add to our data loaders and uh, to our transforms? And what do, what do they actually do? And do I have to change these? Or is it like for any use case that I have, this should work uh, by default. And uh, I came to actually think about this exact question for a while because I also saw that research on data augmentation kind of is exploding or was exploding at that time and there were a lot of papers coming out introducing new kind of augmentations and saying that this data augmentation uh, with this heuristic is better and then there was another paper saying oh no actually the other heuristic let's cut this image and paste it into that image and then mix them together. And then there was another paper doing a different kind of thing. And I kind of, as a personal curiosity, wanted to figure out, okay, what is actually happening? What are all of this doing? And can someone just come up with a heuristic rule that works for every modality, that works for every task, or how how could this even work? Mm Um, And I started uh, to think about, okay, there are some facts in here because we know that if we don't apply these uh, kind of classic augmentations, for example, rotation or um, flipping or these kind of things, our models will not reach those fancy performances. So this was given for me, at least for a specific task.
1: Can we just for a moment, can you maybe for a moment just um, explain a bit what is data augmentation for a listener maybe that, that have not done this
0: themselves? Oh, that's that's a good idea. So data augmentation is this paradigm that actually precedes deep learning. It comes uh, from classic machine learning, which are technically ways to, or one way of thinking of it is for ways to increase your training data so imagine you have 100 images and 100 images is not enough for your task right and you took these 100 images in a summer day that was sunny and the lighting was nice and you had a pretty fancy camera but actually your customers may use your product in different lighting conditions or with different cameras and you could start thinking, OK, as an um, expert in the domain, how can I mimic the lightings, for example, at night or mimic the lightings, mimic the images from a cell phone instead of a fancy camera? And then you perhaps could come up with uh, filters that could mimic and change the lighting conditions of your images and you just apply those filters to or change uh, the lighting in your images um, to make them more dark or apply some uh, filters that could make the photos similar to a photo taken by uh, a cell phone instead of a fancy camera. Change the resolution, change the rotation and so on. And then you will end up instead of 100 image, you perhaps could end up with 10,000 if you have enough uh, kind of augmentation. And then your model could learn a lot more about these images. It could work on the good lighting, it could work on low lighting, it could work on good cameras and also cell phones. So this idea of using data augmentation to increase training data is kind of a, um, yeah, old topic. Mm -hmm. And in deep learning, it came to become very important because even if you look at the AlexNet paper, you see, even in in the first success stories of deep learning data augmentation was present and without it, uh, perhaps this success could not have happened. And it becomes even more and more important because deep neural networks are are very data hungry, and they need to see a lot of a lot of examples. Mm -hmm. And So if you have this in mind that there is a specific task and you are an expert in that task and you know the data, perhaps you can come up with some examples as I gave in in the previous example, just change lighting or change perhaps rotation or so on to use as data augmentation because you know what kind of uh, transformations could happen in your test cases, right? Mm -hmm. So you try to hard code those conditions and simulate those conditions given the data that you have. And then you kind of know, okay, this inductive bias makes sense for my task and for this data. So as an expert, I trust that this, I want this inductive bias to be incorporated into into my model. So you Mm -hmm. come up with the data augmentation, and you train your model with that data augmentation, and then your model becomes invariant towards lighting conditions, for example, or camera lenses and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, Makes sense. This yeah. is yeah, this is kind of the starting or the beginning of data augmentation story. And of course, when you start with this, you would like to automate, start automating even the expert knowledge part, right? You would like to come up with more general rules. Okay, what is the rule that I could apply to a new task that I'm not an expert in, for example? I know perhaps how to do natural image classification, but what if I got an MRI project and I wanted to learn from MRI data? I want something that be more general because I don't have... um, medical knowledge and I'm not a a physician so I don't really know but can I come up with a general rule that works everywhere Mm -hmm. and then it kind of started as uh, building a general purpose um, kind of method that could work in different tasks that could uh, generalize into different data sets that could um, increase generalization for different kinds of data and so on and There were actually also a lot of success stories in in this direction and we saw an increase in the amount of papers published in this direction. And as I was mentioning, I kind of got curious, are uh, are these heuristics really that general? Because there are like different kinds of methods. Uh, There are those that um, try to apply some optimization algorithm or some learning on a data set, and then learn inductive biases that make sense, or the transformations that make sense on the specific distribution, and then apply those uh, onto a training set and then extend the training set. But with the new data set, you learn a different kind of uh, inductive bias, right? And there are other approaches that, for example, use other learning algorithms, perhaps uh, reinforcement learning and try to come up with a new rule for each dataset independently. There are approaches that even go farther and say, okay, I I want to learn the um, density of data using a generative model and I don't need to tweak the data. I cannot generate new samples by itself, by just sampling this generative model because uh, a generative model is kind of a synthesizer, right? It's a simulator. So I can mm-hmm. simulate infinite number of training samples or at least uh, hypothetically, um, I'm not talking about how successful they were, but hypothetically at least mm-hmm. you could do that. Um, and, but there are methods that claim I have a heuristic that I could apply uh, to any kind of data and then make any task better, or at least in on paper. Um, and I was curious, how would these different uh, kinds of data augmentations perform? And how would the underlying models from each of these kinds of data augmentation behave if we would train models using these different kinds of data augmentation? Mm-hmm. And if we would take a magnifying glass and look into the models, how would they be different from each other? Because just looking at the performance perhaps would not be enough. Okay, maybe one performs a little bit better than the other, but uh, I was thinking of ways to analyze these models to understand the fundamental differences of these models trained with different kinds of data augmentation. And that was the starting point of, the data augmentation and adversarial paper because I kind of was fascinated by, by the adversarial machine learning research and they had so many fascinating tools to analyze the characteristics of the models. And I was thinking, okay, these tools are amazing and it's not only useful for adversarial and security and adversarial examples, you could actually understand a lot about your model itself and how uh, they behave in slight changes of distributions uh, that you test your models on and so on and i kind of started thinking about how to adapt those tools and perhaps use those use use those tools to understand the differences between the models trained with different kinds of data Mm augmentation that was the starting point of that research
1: very good. Definitely a wonderful uh, explanation of what data augmentation is and where it came from, and they that definitely um, how useful it can be. But you already touched upon, I think, the second thing, which would be good to maybe explain to our listeners as well that don't, are not familiar with the topic in the adversarial learning and adversarial examples, as you said, right? So uh, you just co- you covered, let's say, the first part of the title of of the um, of your paper on data augmentation, and this, the second part would be on adversarial risk. Can you tell us a bit more about what is adversarial um, training, what are adversarial examples, and how do the two play them together in your paper and you use them?
0: Sure, of course. So maybe adversarial examples became very popular after the rise of deep neural networks, but actually they go way back and these are known to be examples that have imperceptible changes or artifacts that humans cannot see Mm -hmm. that you could add to a particular sample that can drastically change the prediction of a model. So you have a sample, for example, you have a cat and then you show it to your model with the high confidence your model predicts cat and then you kind of come up with a certain way of finding a small perturbation and adding it to the image that your eyes or human eyes cannot see the difference. And to you or to a human, this image looks exactly the same as the the original one. But when you show this uh, perturbed image to the model, then you will see a completely different prediction uh, with a high confidence in the wrong prediction and your model could predict the the image as a, a dog instead of a cat with 99% confidence.
1: Mm-hmm. I think like, just to put it, I think like for the more popular news and science, I had a feeling this was really getting really important, like in, in the context of self-driving cars, right? There was, there were, at some point there was really this, this idea about maybe self-driving cars, they have to obviously analyze the environment. They do it a lot through image analysis and right. And then maybe they have to, to identify that there's a stop sign and people at some point were very afraid, like about this adversarial, um, examples in the real world where maybe one's just put the sticker on a stop sign and suddenly this car would detect this as like a, a highway or something and would accelerate instead of stopping.
0: You're right. Exactly. So there were a couple of communities that were feeling uh, quite stressed about this, the surveillance and the monitoring community the, that were afraid that by a sticker, you could completely bypass their systems or self-driving cars or any actually automated system that, could be launched on a public domain, could actually Mm -hmm. be tricked with with these new examples. It doesn't matter if you're uh, providing an API for a mobile app that, I don't know, reads your, um, I don't know, invoice, it could be attacked the same way as a self-driving car. Mm -hmm. So that that became to be actually a very big and important um, research topic uh, around security, and trustworthiness of machine learning models.
1: Mm-hmm. Understand. Perfect. So we have the two p- things together now, as you said, right? Data augmentation, as you said, like, um, modifying your data set, maybe to the end in order to, to um, include certain inductive biases that you know about You're extending your data set in many ways. And then we have that with several examples, as you said, like understanding that like certain perturbations to your data can have can cause a model to have very different predictions. The two of them, you then in many ways, then you combine them if understood correctly to, as you said, like have a better understanding, have ways to analyze um, how data augmentation changes and what kind of effect it has on a trained model.
0: Exactly. So with the set of tools, uh, mostly inspired from adversarial machine learning research and some of it actually was further developed by us, that could tell uh, tell you actually about the decision boundary of these models. Not only how these models become vulnerable to adversarial attacks of different strengths and different kinds, but also further, do I have a model with a smooth decision boundary? Which means it's very hard for a sample to jump from one class to the other because uh, it has to, Kind of go a long way to pass the boundary? Or do mm-hmm. I have a, a decision, a model with a decision boundary, which is very unsmooth and wiggly? And if I change a little bit my data point, it will jump over to the other class. And this kind of analysis has been uh, used in the adversarial machine learning literature for long. And I found these kind of uh, evaluation tools. Uh, extremely helpful to understand the effect of a particular module or inductive bias that you apply to your model kind of blindly but you can understand better your models using these tools and that's uh, what our paper came to be a uh, large-scale empirical study of analyzing different kinds and strength of data augmentation and then analyzing the models using techniques uh, inspired by Adversarial Machine Learning to kind of tell them apart in terms of characteristics of the the models.
1: Thank you very much for listening to the first part of my interview with Hamid Ekbal Sadeh. In the second part of the interview, we are going to conclude our discussion about the effects of data augmentation on model training, and we will continue with Hamid's research journey which is going to bring us to its disentangled representations and their applications in contextualized reinforcement learning, with the goal to help agents to generalize to unseen situations and novel environments. I hope you enjoyed the interview so far and are looking forward to the second part of it.